Hey folks, this is Anatoly, and you're listening to the Solana No Sharding Podcast. And today I have Clint Erlich, who is the CEO of Currency. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Yeah, it's super cool to have you. So kind of, do you want to like introduce yourself and give a bit of background of how you got into crypto? Sure. Um, I got into crypto reading the, the Bitcoin white paper way back in the day, and uh, I thought it would, ne- would never work. And uh, told my my friends uh, not to buy it, uh, and I was proved uh, very wrong uh, by that. Uh, but the, that experience and thinking about the the space uh, continued, and I was a visiting researcher at MGMO, which for for those outside of the former Soviet Union is sort of like the Harvard of Russia. And while I was there, uh, I did some work at the the intersection of of game theory and international law on crypto and decided to come back to the US and start Currency or KRNC, which uh, is now funded by the the National Science Foundation. So we're rolling out this uh, technology that I invented, which we call proof of balance. Uh, And it's essentially like a a hard fork of the existing fiat monetary system. Yeah, so that's like a, you guys are kind of trying to soft spoon or hard fork the monetary system. Well, it, it kind of it depends on on how you you look at it. I never liked the the spoon terminology. Uh, you you could use it uh, either way. Essentially, the the concept is that you're issuing a new cryptographic asset in proportion to people's existing holdings uh, of fiat money, uh, or rather, their holdings of fiat money during a designated period in the past, the forking period, and then that asset could either be used independently like Bitcoin, or it could be combined with the original money to create a a hybrid asset. So in the case of the dollar, for example, we'd call that a weighted dollar. And that offers essentially the best of both worlds. It has the the guaranteed purchasing power of fiat money, but it has the long-term scarcity of Bitcoin. Uh, And so I guess it could be a soft uh, fork or a, a hard fork, depending on which part of the protocol you're looking at. So how do how does it actually like retain value? Is this going to be like a one-time event? Like uh, on day X, we're going to soft spoon or hard fork the entire world's currency and then it'll never occur again? Or is it going to be like a continuous process? Well, in theory, we'd love for it to, have, for it to be a, a one-time event. In, in practice, it, it may not be possible to roll it out that way. It's not on a single day because you it, you can't actually do that. That's that's sort of the then that would be the naive version of the protocol, and we actually describe something like that in a in a toy environment in our technical paper. The problem is that if you sort of imagine the entire existing fiat banking system uh, like a like a database, you can imagine that the parts of it that uh, each bank is operating is a is a shard, uh, but really it doesn't actually have like strict. Uh, asset guarantees. Like th- there isn't really global consistency. Uh, and similarly, if people knew that you were doing a fork, they could go out and they could uh, borrow money and then artificially inflate their balances. And so to get more accurate readings and to make it harder to manipulate the supply, we measure uh, the average amount of money that's in a given account over a designated period of time. Uh, and so it's basically it's the average balance that you're holding. Uh, and that's how much of this new digital asset, which we call uh, 
we call it gold because it's really an analogy to the, the gold standard. That with the, the gold standard, uh, if, for example, the U.S. returned to that, then the existing holders of fiat money would be receiving something of value. And Bitcoin is often compared to the gold standard, but it's different because the value that's being created isn't distributed to the holders of the existing money. It's something completely different to sort of a, a small group of early adopters. And so our, our value proposition uh, is what if we took all of the cool things about decentralized protocols uh, and then we we just imported the existing state of the global monetary system to, to bootstrap it. But it's still not, there isn't like a, a hard bound of that state to anything that's in the fiat system. It, it's just effectively like, if I understand correctly, you're using my weighted average balance, let's say at Bank of America as a kind of a civil resistant, like crypto, like not a cryptographic proof, but like just some civil resistant voting mechanism to give me X amount of points, right? Well, it's, 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 I, I would say that's one way you can describe the system. You could implement a system like that where you were directly using that balance. And instead, this is, we're unlocking transferable tokens. And so, I mean, one way to conceptualize it would be like a new distribution mechanism layered on top of proof of stake. In practice, that isn't quite true because you have to modify the consensus algorithms themselves. Um, it, it gets a little complicated because you, you have to support retroactive issuance. Uh, everyone isn't going to sign up in advance for this fork. You have to be able to dynamically uh, let them into the system later uh, as they join. But yeah, in principle, we're using this as a, as a civil resistance, resistance mechanism. And what's really exciting is that we've used some new signal theoretic uh, techniques that haven't been used in uh, computer science before that are from biology to show that we can achieve something called asymmetric civil resistance. And the reason that it's that it's asymmetric is that if you start with the axiom that the majority of the existing monetary supply is uh, is owned by honest agents, that then that existing ownership acts as effectively a subsidy that lowers the cost for them of acquiring the voting resource, whereas an attacker would need to purchase more uh, of that resource. Whereas in something like proof of work mining, it's really a sort of symmetric competition where whoever it is that is wasting the most, uh, well, that, that has the most hashing power, whatever the inputs are into that, uh, that they're in charge and there isn't this sort of subsidy for honest agents. So would a same identity or same human like be able to generate more of these? Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting is that, like a, a way of thinking about this is that right now uh, you, you don't have any global identity system that's that's consistent. There isn't any way to do like one person, one vote at internet scale. Uh, but the banking system itself, while it, it isn't one person, uh, one vote, uh, it does have something closer to strict consistency guarantees. So we don't really care about your uh, identity. Like if you used a different name at Bank of America versus Wells Fargo, uh, that, that wouldn't matter because you'd still be unlocking the same amount of cryptographic stake. Got it. Um, so I guess once I get, once I get currency, what do I, what do I do with it? Like why, why is it more valuable to me to get it through this mechanism than let's say through Merkle mining or through like yield farming as the, as the, the new Merkle mining? Right. Well, I mean, I think that the, 
the, the threshold issue is that it's free to you. I mean, we're, we're not charging you for it. And so it's not, there's not a zero sum relationship with participating in currency versus doing those things. The, the reason why it's valuable, we believe, uh, is essentially the, the network effect that it's worth doing for you because it, it's free. And this superior, in our view, distribution mechanism means that it'll be free for other people and you can expect that they'll also do it. Uh, and because there's superior decentralization with people who are unlocking uh, an asset in proportion to their existing fiat versus participating in an ICO, we have some game theoretic proofs about the, the maximum fraction of stake that any adversary could acquire being extremely low. Uh, and so that provides security guarantees. And if you're using something probabilistic like a longest chain algorithm, uh, that actually provides very immediate performance guarantees. And in the future, when we roll out sharding, the fact that the the maximum uh, state controlled by an adversary is so low could allow us to do something similar to what Ethereum is doing for a scaling solution, uh, except without some of the, the complexity of the uh, verifiable randomness that they need. Uh, the I mean, I think that the, the other answer uh, is that obstacle to adoption for a lot of decentralized applications has been this need to cover gas costs, either with a developer including some Ethereum in the initial contract with an expense of deployment or with users needing to go out and purchase that asset. And so currency is the, the first platform where you'll be able to have decentralized applications that people can come and use and interact with without needing to make any sort of investment or without a developer needing to make that investment on their behalf. Essentially, we're we're driving down the, the cost of validation by eliminating the need for either mining or for purchases in an ICO. Well, I mean, somebody still has to run the servers, right? And like yeah. those, those people get paid in something that they need to convert into whatever locally is exchanged for food. Right, they get they get paid in the in the, the native asset, and obviously they have to run the, the servers. The difference is that if you have a stake distributed through an ICO, that the cost of acquiring that cryptographic voting weight then becomes overhead for the validators. And on currency, because we're using a resource that people already own, there isn't that purchase that has to happen, uh, and so we're eliminating one of the components, and in, in some instances, a, a major component of overhead for validators. But like, if everybody has this for free, then who do they sell it to? Somebody has to buy it, right? For them to convert, for them to be able to convert it to food. Yeah, obviously. And so, if look, if if the platform fails, like if people don't want to use it, then then obviously it it, it won't succeed. But if the the idea of a a network where the 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 cost of uh, of gas can be covered by something that you already own is is successful, and, and we think it will be, uh, then people want to buy it uh, for the same reason that they want to buy uh, Ethereum uh, today, right? In order to, like, I, I guess a, a way of thinking about it would be uh, if you decrease that that barrier to uh, adoption, you can onboard a tremendous number of people to the network. They don't own an infinite amount of the underlying asset. They, they have enough to use it. Uh, but that, the, the, the value proposition is, once everyone is there, that it could be the, the network of choice uh, and that some of these security guarantees that we have based on the distribution mechanism uh, will make it a, we think, a very desirable network to use. Got it. So 
I guess the way I can think about it is uh, if you can figure out a way to give everybody like one token, doesn't matter what it is, like everybody in the planet. Yeah. Then Face the coin. network, if, then then right. But if you could do it, <laughs> if you had a way to do it, then the network effects from that distribution will create value because there's scarcity and there is distribution, right? And then people start trading it and some fractional amount will be traded for something useful. So the challenge for you guys is like, how do you actually do it in a way that you think you're giving away one token to everybody, but instead it's just one bot that's getting a million? Well, it's it's not one, I guess the, the answer is, that's exactly the thought process. And, and ironically, what you've described in our technical paper, we have a, a whole like a, a toy model where we talk about a token that's distributed in exactly that way. The problem is that because of civil attacks, you, you can't you can't do it like that. Uh, but what you can do is distribute uh, one one token in proportion to every dollar worth of fiat money that people own. Uh, yep. And then you have essentially, we hope, an equivalent network effect but without this problem of, uh, of a global identity system. And do you guys convert the local currency to dollars? What we, what we would like to be able to do, and obviously this depends on uh, how different jurisdictions internationally feel uh, about the, the, te the technology, uh, but we can go back and measure uh, the relative value of different fiat currencies uh, during uh, that time period. Uh, and so if you have a if you have dollars in your bank account and someone else has euros in their bank account during the forking period, we can go back and have and use the, the exchange rate between those things uh, to say, look, this is what the the dollar value of the euros that you're holding were. And here is a proportionate quantity of fork dollars for you, even if you weren't really holding dollars at all, you were holding euros because it's, it's not really dollars. I guess fork yeah. dollars just a it's a way of measuring the quantity of cryptographic gold and so the same way that the the dollar itself originally was just a weight of gold a quote-unquote fork dollar in currency is just a measurement of a quantity of cryptographic gold a uh, a forked euro would just be another measurement of the of the the quantity of gold that someone receives so i guess just a paraphrase this, this is kind of interesting because like the problem you guys are solving is this like human identity problem, but also the Sybil attack problem. And let's say I built a system which was using, you know, identifying cats versus dogs. Then that system, while can potentially, let's say was good enough to where AI wasn't able to do it yet, somebody could basically farm it out to a bunch of people in like click shops where they just go and do this like a million times and get a million tokens and that that it's that kind of civil attack is impossible to to really work around on the internet right because you're effectively like those are people those are humans on the other end <laughs> right and they're able to like farm whatever whatever human proof mechanism you have and the cool thing about this is that myself as a regular human with some amount of money i can effectively get my portion of tokens and that portion is impossible to for somebody else to to effectively civil attack with cheap labor exactly it's 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 proof that you, your money is proof of work that you've done in the past you had to earn it somehow 
And so it's really what we're doing is sort of harnessing this proof of actual work that you did right. for simple resistance. So even, you know, deservingly or non-deservingly, you still have the money and that is in effect some simple resistant weighted amount. Not that it, and that's, that's a really cool idea. So um, the question is how, like, I mean, like the challenges to me is that like, this is going to be really hard for people to go want to do it because the immediate benefits are not clear, right? Like I, I can get this token and hope that someday it'll be worth something, right? So this is like a, one of like the hardest problems in startups, right? Is that if you have a, a business which makes money off network effects, how do you actually create enough value and a big enough network for those networks, network effects to to take off. That's that's absolutely true, and I think the 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 problem that you normally run into there is you're trying to sell something to people, and if if it relies on network effects, then initially it isn't valuable enough for them to buy it. So if you have a a fax machine and no one else has a fax machine, it's not worth something to you, and the the fax machine salesman saying give me a thousand dollars is going to get kicked out of your office. The beauty of currency is that we aren't actually asking people to uh, to pay us anything. We're, we're just we're we're providing uh, access to something that they already own. So when you say that it'll be difficult to get them to do it, I mean that that may be the case. But if if you think that it has uh, some value now, like if there if we can get any sort of liquid market, then hey, like it's a very small amount of your time uh, to go and, and unlock this. Uh, and then at that point, even if you don't think it's valuable in the future, if it's if it's has some residual value in the present, you would you'd sell it. Like great, you've just got a little bit of, of free money. Uh, we're interested also in working with with banks uh, who uh, are maybe not that interested in purchasing a new asset like XRP, but if they already have custody uh, of these large quantities of fiat money, then uh, they can get access to the, the forked version of that on behalf of their account holders. Uh, and then there are certain revenue making uh, opportunities for them based on the spread, based on potentially making money uh, as by, by delegating uh, that stake to validators. Uh, I would love to circle around though to this, this question of, of civil resistance because I, I think it's only really half of the, the conversation. This is uh, something that, that I'm really obsessed about, which is, uh, if you take a statistical perspective, it's like you put away computer science, and you look at the way that that surveys are done, that in the ontology of errors that you can have there, you have sampling error and non-sampling error. Uh, and civil resistance or the civil attack, I would argue, is basically just an instance of, of uh, a form of non-sampling error called measurement uh, error. Uh, and it's not like that, that isn't the main source of, of, of bias. And so going back to that face coin example, let's imagine that we did have a, a system like that uh, so that like civil attacks were uh, impossible, but people still had to join the ledger. Uh, if, if you had a small number of people who joined, you might have, you'd have perfect civil resistance because there's only uh, one coin per person but it wouldn't give you a security guarantee because even if you knew axiomatically that the majority of the entire population of people was honest, you aren't getting a sufficient sample uh, to replicate that uh, inside your protocol. And so what's I think that what's exciting about 
currency uh, is that because it's free for people to join, because it's money that they already own, we believe that we can get a much larger sample than anyone has today. That we have a, a value proposition that's different because it doesn't require purchasing something new, it requires unlocking something you already own. And if, if we can convince people to do that for free, then we'll have this massive sample. And in our technical paper, we show how that provides very robust security guarantees. Do you guys think that the system could run without slashing? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm sort of agnostic on slashing. I think it's really an, an open question uh, whether it's necessary. I know that you're a big fan of 100% slashing, correct? Yeah, this this is like an interesting like topic. If you can create an environment where you have guarantees that your committee, whatever whoever you're picking to do the block production is honest, do you need slashing at all? I'm very sympathetic to algorithms that are not really descendants of, uh, of traditional BFT, or I, I actually hate that term. I think it's it, it's misleading. I'd, I'd call them like traditional quorum-based uh, algorithms. Uh, and the the reason for that is that if you're if you're trying to build something you know like Bitcoin but better, my concern is the ultimately the volume of lost keys is going to be such that the it, it could just break the liveness guarantees of of a of a liquid democracy. Uh, protocol that way. And so I, I'm open to uh, non-slashing longest chain uh, algorithms. Uh, but what what's cool is that it really doesn't matter because I think that for, for currency, the most important thing will ultimately be governance. If all of these people are going to be able to have access to this new cryptographic asset, I think what they should really reach consensus about is how do we want the protocol to work? Uh, and uh, I, I don't want to be the the mastermind architect of the the details of consensus, you know, far into the future. Uh, I want to have a pro a protocol that's actually decentralized enough with enough stakeholders who are willing to put money into it and do development that can evolve organically. Yeah, that's tough. It's really tough. It's, yeah. it's the hard it's the hardest thing in this space. Yep. How does the actual proof verification work? Do I like do do I have like a Bank of America connector? Or like, is it like a turbo or, or is it like a accreditation check? What we're doing uh, right now uh, is that uh, we use, you know, Visa's Plaid API in order to go and query balances. Uh, you you would register uh, through uh, our, uh, our essentially equivalent of a custodial platform. It's like as if, you know, currency Inc were like Coinbase. Uh, because you know most people are not competent to manage their own cryptographic keys. Uh, but if you are, then once you've verified uh, your uh, your balance through Plaid, then you can uh, you can withdraw uh, the assets uh, that you receive. Uh, ultimately, we'd really like to migrate uh, to uh, OAuth two, uh, or you know even better, um, we have a, a system of of delegated issuance where we work with the banks and they're able to essentially certify uh, for a, a set of their account holders the uh, amount uh, of the of the asset that is owed, and then we issue it to them. Uh, and that way, we don't even have to like have access to indiv individual account data. Got it. This is like, uh, you know, this is definitely in spirit of the soft spoon, like Ethermint. Like those folks were like, 
looked at the Ethereum distribution and felt that it was like it was honest enough. Um, it was probably at the time pretty good. And, and this is maybe like taking that idea to the next level. Can we do the same thing, but at a global level? But that's uh, okay. So imagine you guys actually got everybody in the world with a bank account to in one month to go and, and generate currency. What, what happens next? Well, I just want to clarify that we don't need all of the people to go do it in in one month. What's what's cool is that because of the the we're relying on on balances uh, where the, the data is archived, like we can re retroactively later go uh, and verify what the balance was uh, in the past, uh, and then uh, issue stake uh, in the protocol. And uh, the obvious question: You're a smart guy, so I imagine you're going to say, "Well, then it's it's actually not really." Uh, like decentralized at all. Like you could just go and, and issue yourself an unlimited quantity of stake and then take over the consensus algorithm. And the, the answer to that is that in the Genesis block of the protocol, uh, there are restrictions on the global amount uh, that, that can be issued. And then also more specific ones per like, you know, individual currencies and, and banks. And so there's essentially, and there's also a, a block height where that new issuance uh, ceases. And so like, okay, you, you have this, this finite window of opportunity uh, of a couple of years to show up and uh, unlock your, your currency uh, retroactively, and hopefully everyone will do that. So in your hypothetical, if everyone uh, in the world uh, did that, uh, then everyone would be onboarded onto uh, a decentralized ledger that would, I think, provide the, a value proposition similar to, to Bitcoin uh, or Ethereum. And I, I think really that's good for the entire space because right now the issue isn't getting traction inside crypto. It's getting real traction with, with people who haven't even been brought into crypto yet. And if, if we can uh, onboard them, so to speak, to the internet of value, then my vision is for that to really bring our whole industry into the mainstream. That's an interesting bet. So you guys can potentially have these kind of effects that are outside of the space because you can potentially convince people to, hey, just connect your bank or like run this Blad API and, and you get issued cryptocurrency for free. Yeah. And that may or may not be worth something, but there's enough people that, that like love this stuff, right? <laughs> right. No. And what's what's cool about it also is that I think one of the difficulties with any new token is sort of the, the mental cost of what is this worth? What does it mean, right? E even with Bitcoin, it's very hard for people to understand like what is a Bitcoin and how would I conceptualize the value that it has? And what's interesting about currency is that for the uninitiated uh, or people who are not into crypto, it's actually much easier to explain. And once you explain it, they, they have opinions on the price. Like if I explain what a fork dollar is, I can ask someone, so what do you think a fork dollar should be worth? Like if this is sort of like the Bitcoin version of your dollar. So uh, like, what do you think the, the odds are of that succeeding? And they can compare that to the original dollar and say, oh, like I'd, I'd value that, you know, like, you know, 100 to one in favor of the existing dollar. It's like, okay, well, so value that, you know, the, the fork version at one cent. Uh, but that, I think that it clicks with the uninitiated in a way that just talking about um, a new asset that isn't grounded in anything that they're familiar with 
tends not to. So you guys are not even working on, but the interesting part where you guys are working on is more of like the, the human virus, like getting people, <laughs> getting crypto into the hands of people. It doesn't mean even matter what it is. Uh, I but, mean, and, and that is like, I think like the whole crux of Bitcoin, right? Was how do we do civil resistant distribution? Yes, came up exactly. with proof of work, right? <laughs> right. Well, um, you, you touched on a great topic, though, which is when you say the crux of Bitcoin is how do we do civil resistant distribution? I think that's been lost. I think that the all of the discussion about you know, using BFT algorithms and proof of stake has made people think that the point of Bitcoin was using proof of work in order to to reach consensus, and really it has a it has a dual purpose. It's both this mechanism for determining the initial owner of each coin. And then it's also a mechanism for reaching consensus about subsequent transactions. And I don't think that proof of stake has really been a, a full replacement for proof of work yet, because it, it covers that, that second aspect of proof of work, except it's always then required something else, like either an initial proof of work mining period or an ICO or something to do the, the distribution. And so it's it's our belief that proof of balance provides sort of this, this missing piece uh, to really replicate everything that proof of work is doing in Nakamoto consensus. Yeah, I would, I would agree with you that proof of stake is definitely really focused on censorship resistance over everything else. And I don't even know if it achieves the same kind of censorship resistance as proof of work does. It doesn't. It really, really doesn't. And I, I would argue that we, we proved that actually pretty well in, in the, the paper that one of the issues uh, with, with proof of stake that I think the community hasn't really grappled with sufficiently is, is path dependence. Uh, so, for example, uh, I'm really critical of that, the Ouroboros uh, paper uh, that claims to have replicated the, the properties of Nakamoto consensus uh, with uh, proof of stake, because what it really shows is if the initial owners uh, of the, the stake in the ICO are willing to then transfer it to new participants, that then you can achieve decentralization and censorship resistance. But if you have an initial ICO where someone, a, a malicious actor could come and secretly purchase the, the majority uh, of the stake there, they can just transfer it to themselves. Uh, and there, there's no way to differentiate that from real decentralization. I mean, any any proof of stake network, as soon as a third of the participants are corrupt, they can censor and effectively get twice as much, twice as many rewards. Right, well, I mean, I, I think that the, 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 the issue is that we, we talk about that often and we talk about the threshold for the consensus algorithm as if it's the, the only thing that matters. And it does matter, but you also have to translate that into the cost of acquiring that stake, right? And so when a platform is mature, it would be incredibly expensive to, to come in and, and buy a super threshold uh, quantity of, of stakes. So like if, if Bitcoin switched to proof of stake today, you know, that would be a very expensive attack. But if you start with an, an ICO that is, that is much smaller, and then the block rewards are distributed in proportion to ownership of that initial stake, then in terms of verifying the cost to perform the attack, it, an adversary who paid that, uh, that, that who, who paid to buy a super threshold amount 
early on, before the platform reached maturity, could potentially hold on to it. Now, whether you think that that's a, a risk, I mean, it, that, that's that's subjective. But I think the the proof of cryptographic verification is has been to remove subjectivity wherever possible. And so part of what we're trying to do, and part of why I think that the the R for retroactivity in KRNC is really important is to have this mechanism to prevent that kind of, of path dependence in our system security guarantees. What do you guys think in terms of like some, my, my view is that the proof of work has some really unique properties around security, which are based yeah. simply around the fact that even if you have an attacker, like right now, my Bitcoin that's a thousand blocks deep doesn't care. Right. I, yeah. I don't really care. I don't really care what happens to the blocks now because my security is already paid for. And I think that is completely lacking in proof of stake networks. As soon as you do end up with like a, a third dishonest majority, they kind of control the entire state machine. And that is the security of the network. That's the value of it. I think that I would push back a little bit on that. So I'd say that is true in the sense that the the state will not be retroactively changed. I think that you you do care because if what you're doing is holding that Bitcoin as like a, a substitute for, for gold, for example, if there are successful attacks on the network, they can then undermine the value proposition of the network, even if your older uh, you know, Bitcoin is not itself uh, endangered. Uh, and so I- Yeah, I, but, but so that is a, an attack on the current price of Bitcoin to dollars, but that, right. that's may not be why I'm even holding Bitcoin. Yeah, absolutely. It could, you know, and, and, and on, on a more complex, like a, a Turing complete state machine, you may have totally different reasons not related to like, you know, market price of an asset. Uh, I, I think that that's true. I think that the, the, the bigger property to me that's so interesting about uh, like proof of work uh, is the, the fact that it, it has this dynamic entry that, that anyone can, can come in and join and start participating so that if it's bootstrapped, that you don't have trust that has to be assigned in the past to the initial participants. That to me is what I think is really distinctive about Nakamoto consensus um, and uh, that is a, it's a property that we've, we can partially replicate. The, the downside to that is actually that a, a free entry condition can undermine uh, security, ironically, because it, it, it interferes with incentive compatibility. If you think that in, as a miner, if you think that in the future it's possible that someone with more hashing power is going to enter the network, then you don't have this franchise value. Like you don't have a, a complete um, interest in the present security of the network because you might not actually be benefiting uh, from the, the future security. And so proof of stake has an, an advantage. It's, it's well, this I think that misses some of a, like in a, in a proof of work network, I do benefit from future blocks, even if they're produced by somebody else, if I'm still holding Bitcoin. There is like me as a miner, I may not be right because I'm no longer providing hash power. But I, I'm a, by mining, I'm acquiring Bitcoin, and I, and I don't care who's producing in the future. Yeah, no, I just I mean that your your capital expenditure, like the capital cost of acquiring the the ASICs, and so the, your reward would be limited to what you've already mined, not to Correct. the future yeah. block rewards. Uh, and so you can get stronger incentive compatibility with proof of stake. Uh, I think that our proof of balance architecture 
what we're trying to do is to provide the, the best of both worlds. Essentially, what if you have open entry initially for like a long period of time, for years, so that everyone has this opportunity to enter the network. No one can say, hey, like I'm being excluded. I didn't have a chance to get my stake. But then once you do that, then it's sort of self-contained and circular uh, and that you have then the, the incentive, compatibility, incentive compatibility of proof of stake at that point. So are you worried about people just soft spooning your Genesis block? Potentially. It's an, that's an, it's an interesting thing. It's something that we've uh, thought about. I don't know that I'm ready to fully comment on that issue at this time. But yes, that is something on our radar. So what's kind of cool is that like this is almost like the problem in like finding a, an RSA semi-prime that's safe, mm -hmm. right? Like we need to get a, like a thousand people to collaborate on this. On this right, and then, and then we right? have it, it's done, basically. It, yeah, it's free for everybody. So if you guys find the best Genesis block, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not only that, you actually get everybody in the world to get some some kind of cryptographic public key, mm -hmm. right? And for them to actually store, those, store the secret and have custody of it, anyone can basically fork it and do that distribution. And that is that... Uh, I don't know. I, I, that is actually like a cool thing that could happen from the results of your work. I think it's a good work. thing. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily like call it as like a threat. It's almost like telling Linus, what if everybody forks Linux and there's a million Linux? <laughs> it would be very bad for us if they found a way to go and fork it in order to remove the portion of the asset that is that is owned by the company and that is funding the development of the platform. That would be extremely bad. Uh, we think that there are uh, that 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 hasn't really been successful in Bitcoin. Like you know, attempts to uh, fork Bitcoin to get rid of like Satoshi's coins did not succeed. Uh, and we also were working on cryptographic methods to make it difficult to do that. Yeah, something like if you could build a sapling like Zcash circuit that did this distribution, that would be really interesting too. It would be really interesting. Uh, it would be uh, really interesting if you know we could use like you know enclaves. Although I don't really you know trust like trusted trusted execution environments very much these days. I think there's a lot of you know side channel problems. There's there's all sorts of amazing stuff that you can do once you have this concept of sort of like getting the keys in everyone's hands this way. Yeah. And what's what's cool is that like the concept of uh, a proof of balance is, is sort of an evolution of uh, why people thought proof of work was a really good idea. Like if you go to the Nakamoto Institute website and you look at their article on proof of work, what they do is they they talk about the, the, the handicap principle and the idea of peacocks wasting uh, resources growing these giant tails in order to signal their fitness. And everyone in computer science seemed to think that like the handicap principle was like this universal uh, like rule uh, of, of nature and computing. Uh, and what we did is we actually went and looked at like the, the state of the art in actual biological signaling theory. And we saw that, that that isn't true, actually, that now Q-based signaling, uh, which is what tigers do, where uh, they demonstrate their fitness just based on how big they are. And like that, that's already optimal for them. Like they're already spending resources on size, not for signaling purposes, just because it's already their preference to be big so they can kill things. 
and that 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 kind of queue-based authentication uh, is is newer uh, and and way more efficient. Like being a peacock is bad. You'd, you'd rather be a tiger. And we took those mathematical models and adapted them to computer science. Uh, but it's it's really inspired by what proof of work was trying to do uh, to like have this reliable way of signaling. It's just it's just a very inefficient mechanism, and we've come up with a better one, I think. So the the Merkel mining is effectively peacock feathers. Yes, <laughs> I love that analogy. <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. I mean, proof of work is definitely like towards the big, the biggest, most scaled hash power wins, and Merkel mining doesn't have that property at all. But yeah, that that's kind of interesting. I mean, you you could say that essentially that this sort of queue-based signaling that that's what happens whenever you do a fork, right? That like on you know like Bitcoin Cash, that it was the the ownership of of Bitcoin that allowed people to receive uh, Bitcoin Cash. The difference from currency is that that the thing that people already own there is already very niche, and it's something that was distributed through proof of work in the first place. And so this is a way to measure something that people have. Uh, it, like have a, incurred sunk costs to acquire uh, throughout the population and harnessing essentially those massive sunk costs instead of requiring new costs. And so like a, an analogy that I like to give is uh, at, a, at a nightclub, you see uh, men all the time like buy bottle service, right? This like incredibly expensive thing to do to try to show I'm a cool guy and like impress ladies. But if you were trying to evaluate what is the actual net worth of this guy. You wouldn't want to look at like how much money he's wasting for signaling purposes on bottle service. You'd want to look at the things that naturally he already would be purchasing, like real estate or his car. That will provide you much more reliable data. And that's essentially the approach that we're taking. <laughs> I love your analogies, man. It's pretty funny. Um, They're true, though. I mean, that's the, the, the good thing, like that. That they're funny, but they're true. Like I think what's interesting about this is that like Bitcoin Cash's success was, I would say, entirely largely due to the fact that it was a fork of Bitcoin, that it carried over its the state. And that's why mining went over there, and that's why people place some value on that on that state. That, that's kind of like I think um an underappreciated thing. That if it wasn't for the if if they actually tried to start a new Genesis block and onboard all those Bitcoin folks one by one through the mining, it would have not succeeded. No, never. And the if you were trying to think, if you're trying to evaluate like, well, what is it that we should fork? I think there's there's basically two primary considerations. One is like, what is the 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 value and the the breadth of distribution of some existing ledger or asset? And then second is how technologically limited is it, right? Like how much is it that whatever it is that we're forking or changing is gonna provide increased value. And so Bitcoin Cash really changed not very much at all. Uh, and it's still, I mean, relative to Bitcoin, it's a failure, but like relative to most startups or companies, it's an incredible success story, right? I mean, it's worth billions of dollars today. Uh, and part of the vision for, for currency is, well, what if you took something that like a, a parent asset that instead of being worth billions of dollars was worth trillions of dollars. And what if instead of just tweaking the asset a little bit, instead you said, look, we're gonna move this away from centralized management 
to a decentralized blockchain. And that is going to be completely different. Uh, and so that's why I think that it will have value. The same reason that Bitcoin Cash has some value because it inherited some of that state that people assign value to. Uh, I think that currency will have the, the same thing. And in, in the long term, ultimately, what is it that provides enduring value to a ledger? Like as, as new technology comes online, I think it can be really hard to like to say, look, my ledger is valuable because only of like TPS, right? Like you need to somehow get people to care about the actual state that's contained there. And the value in currency is based on actually who owns it. And so when, when you were talking about the, the forks, hey, as long as it's an honest fork that, that isn't trying to like cut certain people out, they're, they're really like importing the, the actual state, like that, that's great. Like if, if this could become the canonical state that everyone uses the same way that, you know, Bitcoin has been within crypto, but instead on a, on a global scale, uh, I think that would be phenomenal. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I'm like, I'm actually like super excited about what you guys are doing. I was very skeptical, I think, uh, at the start of the conversation. But the idea that if you can get the folks that are outside of crypto and like give them something that is crypto and do it in a at, at a massive scale, like if you get execute that, you will create a massive network effect just from that distribution of those cryptographic keys. That, that's like a really, really cool outcome. Thank you. Uh, I think that's a pretty common reaction is like skepticism way this can't really work. How, how is this going to happen? But then when, when smart people who understand the computer science and the cryptography look into it a little more, they go, oh, wait a second, this, this could be a huge deal. And I, I think it is going to be a huge deal. Cool. I'm uh, super excited about your future. So hopefully you guys succeed. Um, startups have a lot of a lot of bumps, but you know, it's thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah the part of the journey. Um, thank you for coming on the show. Do you have a Do you have anything that you want to mention that's upcoming that we can point folks to? Uh, they should go to the the website uh, krnc.io uh, and sign up there so that they can unlock uh, their stake uh, on our test net as soon as it launches. Awesome. Well then, um, appreciate hearing about currency and uh, getting to know you. My pleasure. Thank you.